I'd like, if I may, to introduce Mr. Edwards, Mr. John Edwards, of the Proceeding Movement. He has been involved in organising the British tour that Dr. Moir has just almost now completed, and is involved with the Proceeding Movement and the Pro Ecclesia et Pontificiae. I welcome Mr. Edwards. Thank you very much. I'd just like to start with a prayer, if we find if we'd like to stand in. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you very much. Um, John. Can you all hear all right? Quite a small hall, but uh, we put some amplification just in case. Um, I haven't done this before. I've listened to the other chairman uh, of the evening, but Aidan Mackey, who should have been the chairman this evening, is unfortunately detained in Bedford, and he's got to get to Heathrow with some Australian visitor tomorrow morning, so it was impossible for him to be in this part of the country. And he very much regrets not being here, because he wanted to meet Dr. Mara, he being very... In well, an authority on Chesterton, I think you said himself, and I know Dr. Mara is a, uh, a great adorer of G.K. Chesterton. Dr. Mara is a professor, associate professor of philosophy at Fordham University in New York. He took both graduate degrees, M.A. and Ph.D. under Dietrich von Hildebrand. He is well known in the USA for his extensive lecture tours, most of which have been recorded, and he is the author of happiness and Christian hope. He is a host or co-host with Father Vincent Mincelli of a radio program which is syndicated in seven major cities and the radio program is called Where Catholics Meet. He was the founder of the original Holy Innocence School which was one of the first or probably the first parent managed school in the USA. He is a widower and father of four. And I'd like to introduce you now to Dr. Mara. Thank you, John, and dear friends in Christ. It's a real adventure for me to be on this tour. We came back this morning from Edinburgh, Scotland, and that was quite an experience for me, and it's still a more interesting experience to speak in a pub in a town which is known for its uh, being a national shrine to the Blessed Mother. This topic of conscience is perhaps one of the two or three most important topics in the church. And we have to be absolutely clear on where the truth lies because it is serving to destroy the church. It almost has destroyed society. And if you just think about conscience, what are the things that, prob uh, what are the things that worry people? Well, when the war was on, the Vietnam War, and that almost destroyed America, the American state wanted people, wanted males, to register for the draft, and then they would go into the military, and if you're in the military, you have to shoot the enemy. And finally, or somehow, some of the Catholic theologians, above all, discovered a commandment. Thou shalt not kill a North Vietnamese. That was the first time they ever spoke of the commandments in 20 years. But suddenly it became a sin to fight the Vietnamese war. And the way people resisted 
joining the army, or if they were in the army, shooting at the enemy was conscience. That the state tells me to join the military, my conscience says no, my conscience has supremacy. Now, I'm not here to argue the merits of the war. That is a very difficult chapter in anyone's history. But at least you can agree that in the moment conscience is urged as an excuse for action or non-action, it cancels that authority. The full authority of the American state said, do it. And Father Daniel Berrigan, an alleged Jesuit, an alleged Catholic, says, my conscience prohibits me from doing it, and you men, your conscience should prohibit you from doing it. And the conscience was supposed to win. Anytime I want to find out where a chaplain is on a university, in a Catholic university, I don't look for the crucifix or the tabernacle. They probably don't exist. I look for the war resistors. Most chaplains on most Catholic campuses, they are draft counselors. And then they worried about El Salvador and, and hunger. This is the extent of their postulate. And Jesus Christ is introduced, if at all, as a revolutionary. Uh, he, uh, Jesus Christ revolutionary, like Che Guevara. Now, I'm going to leave that aside because that is not my topic today. That will or can destroy a state. In the Roman Catholic Church... The word conscience almost never was heard in any controversial way until the encyclical on birth control, Humanae Vitae. I have been educated in Catholic schools for 19 years, from kindergarten right up through the doctorate. I have taught in a Catholic university 30 years. I'm absolutely thoroughly familiar with everything going on in Catholic education, at least in the States, and I would say also in most parts of Europe, Western civilization. And the only time you ever heard the word conscience was go before going to confession, auricular confession, you were asked to make an examination of conscience. Did you, as you went through the different commandments, did you remember, did you remember certain things which you now accuse yourself of having done? Did your conscience bother you about that cruel remark, that impure thought, that theft, or that shady deal you made with your neighbor? So in this examination of conscience, your conscience was the bookkeeper. And when you examined the conscience, it would accuse you of this and this and this. And then you went to confession and provided everything else was right. You had forgiveness. You had absolution. And no one ever protested conscience. It was one of the most important parts of our religious life, and it still is. However, when Pope Paul VI came out with his encyclical on contraception, Humanae Vitae, 1968, all of a sudden, from every seminary, every Catholic graduate school, every journalistic enterprise, came a thunderous denunciation of the Pope in the name of conscience. And I say two things have destroyed what seemed to be this, the great unity of the Roman Catholic Church. It was the introduction of the New Ordo and Humanae Vitae. 
And sometimes people are on different sides. Those who want the old mass are in favor of the Pope on contraception. And those who love the new ordo are against the Pope. And it seems as if the Pope is always on the wrong side for any group. No one can ever, he cannot satisfy anyone. Now, I am in no way about to say that the pontificate of Paul VI was a roaring success. It was at least a tragedy, perhaps the most troubled pontificate in the history of the church. Paul VI was an excellent teacher. His credo of the people of God will probably be immortal. It was an absolutely perfect statement in a most differentiated way of what the church believes and has always believed, but it was still more articulated than the Nicene Creed. It did not contradict the Nicene Creed in one line, in one punctuation mark. That credo came out just before Humani Vitae. Nobody paid any attention to it. As I say in various talks of mine, if any military or governmental agent wants to keep things top secret, I do not recommend you lock it in a safe because the enemy will blow up the safe and get the secret. Just put it between two covers and call it a papal encyclical. Nobody will read it. It's top secret. Nobody has ever heard of the credo of the people of God on either side. Humani Vitae, everybody has heard of it. Very few people read it. As a matter of fact, when it came out, it, uh, I was... It was, I think, August of 68, and we heard the news on the radio that the Vatican announces uh, uh, Monsignor Lambruschini has just called a press conference and has promulgated a document of Paul VI on birth control. And this, we got the information maybe four in the afternoon, New York time. By the next morning, 170 theologians had denounced the document. They hadn't read it. Many of my own colleagues at Fordham University, Jesuit priests and laity, denounced the document. So, and this goes on and on and on and on. There is no peace in the church. We have all of these fatalist marches for peace and speeches about peace and people are going to try to pacify the world and they have the solution to nuclear weapons and hunger and civil war. But there is no peace in the church, as you people know. There's no peace in religious communities. Despite all this talk of brotherhood and toleration, that woe to the person who wants to remain faithful, that person finds no peace. It's only the peace of slaves in many religious communities. But the single greatest reason for the chaos in the church, I say, was this denunciation on the part of churchmen Bishops, hierarchies, theologians of humanity, of the papacy. And then as if the papacy had not enough problems, Pope Paul promulgated the new order, which to anyone's mind is certainly not a pastoral success, at least put it that way. It was supposed to have been the instrument of pastoral renewal, which means feeding the lambs and feeding the sheep and for whatever reason, the lambs are poisoned, the sheep are starved, and they're scattered. So at least from the pastoral point of view, it's a disaster. But I still say, had there been unity on humani vitae, enormous problems could have been solved. There would have been, there would have been a, a church of order 
not a church of rebellion in which everyone rebels against everyone else. And dear friends, in the moment the enemy, and by the enemy I mean the Masonic politicians, the atheists, the secular humanists, in the moment they saw our Roman Catholic Church in disorder, in the moment they saw everyone ganging up on the Pope, they knew the time was right to push the pro-death movement. And they were absolutely right. We will, we will become irrelevant in another 20 years because the enemy correctly perceives us as having a civil war over authority within the church so the enemy will do anything. We'll have, we'll have, of course, forced contraception and abortion and sex education of the most unspeakable kind. The enemy will have euthanasia in a few years, at first voluntary, then forced. And we'll have a few speeches by people and a few marches, but the one obstacle to the triumph of the secular state and to the diabolically inspired Masonic secularist human estate, namely the Roman Catholic Church, seems dead. You have a few giddy people insisting that we are experiencing an explosion of the spirit. I admit there's a spirit, but I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit. Because the church, to, from any human point of view, the church is dead. Chesterton has this consoling remark. He said, Five times at least in history the church seemed dead. And he mentions the great schisms and, and uh, heresies. He said, but the church has a God who knows his way out of the tomb. And the church is not dead. It's underground. It is disorganized on so many levels. There are scandals, there are errors, there are heresies. But not so the bride. The bride retains her identity if in a smaller uh, congregation. Now, I do not mean in this lecture to discuss the implications of Humani Vitae, that it has destroyed church authority, the resistance to it has destroyed church authority. I mean to take up the single question of conscience. I want to analyze the question of conscience in the following order. I first want to see what exactly is meant by conscience. This is not clear by either side. Secondly, what are the rights of conscience against immoral commands by those in authority? And the commands may either be really immoral or they may seem to me to be immoral. It makes no difference. Does conscience have a right to, uh, to oppose and resist a command that seems sinful. And thirdly, and this is the heart of my talk, suppose there is a teaching, not a command, a teaching on the part of the magisterium, the, the Roman Catholic magisterium, which means the Holy Father, or an ecumenical council, and suppose this teaching either is erroneous or seems to be erroneous, does conscience have any rights against the teaching authority of the church. So that is my plan. I come to the first thing, namely the, the role and identity of conscience. And the first thing to note is this, your conscience and my conscience does not discover what is good and what is evil. 
We need a prior set of moral statements, a prior set of moral truths, which our conscience then uses. And where do we get this prior code? Where do we get this prior set of moral principles of good and evil? I'm not talking about artistic taste. Some people have very excellent artistic taste. Others have atrocious taste in architecture, in flower arrangement, in clothes and anything else. That has nothing to do with conscience. I'm talking about good and evil, virtue and vice, sin and its opposite. And I say every one of us has moral principles. We don't always live up to them. But we have moral principles. Where do we get them? Are they born? Are, are we born with moral principles? And the answer is... You get moral principles in different ways. Sometimes you get them on your own insight. You are not born with the principle. You are born with a mind that can understand the principle. So I already can know at a tender age that stealing is wrong, that cruelty is wrong, even if no one tells me that, and the golden rule would be my instructor here, if I am tempted to be cruel to my little friend, and someone says, how would you like someone to be cruel to you? I instantly know it would be terrible. It's wrong to be cruel. If I want to steal his toy, how would I like it if he stole my toy? So the golden rule and a little reasoning can teach even a five-year-old that certain things are sinful, wicked, ought not to be done. Other things are good, generous, ought to be done. So that's one way you and I build up a moral code through perception, through these little reasonings using the golden rule. A second way, and probably more widespread, and it goes hand in hand with our own perception, is through accepting the teaching authority of someone else. Our parent, our teacher, the preacher in church or the scout master, the girl guides or the boy guides master, that these adults whom we trust, they say to us, X is good, Y is evil. You should not do this, you should do that. And we agree with them. We are told to memorize the commandments of God. That's 20 years ago. Today they are top secret too. But if you wrap them in plain paper, you can get them past customs. And maybe you can't post them in a, public, in, a, in a government school in America, but you could at least hand them out uh, when they're getting rid of that dope in the schoolyard. Maybe you can sneak them in. But the commandments are a source of our moral principles, the promulgation of Moses' commandments, the teachings, the exhortations, the preachings of, of authority, scoutmasters, uh, parents and priests and the like, and our value perception. Now the key point is this. At a tender age, every one of us knows, unless he's mentally deficient, every normal person knows that there are a series of things which ought not to be done. They're sinful. And let me use a shorthand expression. Let us say, we all know, or we think we know, X is wrong. X is sinful. One ought not to do X. And the typical X is lying, cheating, stealing, being cruel, and so on. Impurity, impure actions, and so on. 
Now comes conscience. Everything I've said so far has nothing to do with conscience, or is not the origin of conscience. It has to do with moral education. Conscience is the most mysterious part of our consciousness. It, one speaks of the voice of conscience. One speaks of being nagged by the voice of conscience. And you and I know this. I, am, I, don't, I think there's only one person having been immaculately conceived, and she no longer is on earth. For everyone else has had this experience, alas. We are in a situation where X seems attractive to be cruel, to steal, to lie, to be impure, delicious. That's why it tempts us. And in the moment the X glitters before us, we hear a voice. Or there seems to be some nagging principle inside of us saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It's wrong. You shouldn't do it. There was this charming film, cartoon film, Pinocchio. And little Jiminy Cricket was telling this wooden little boy, let your conscience be your guide. And the voice of conscience was saying, Pinocchio, don't do that, that's wrong. Now, I claim every one of us has known this experience. The, the, the X glitters up before us. We sure would like to do X. X is delicious. But something nags us and says, don't do X. It's a sin. That is the experience of conscience. Conscience. Most of us pay no attention to that. Sometimes we heed conscience. And, and just as we're about to yield... Conscience wins, and, and that is a, it's a great triumph of grace when we resist this allure of sinfulness. Just as often we yield, conscience says, don't do it, we do it. But conscience does not give up on that. Conscience nags us and bothers us. You know, we have something in the States which you might have the equivalent of here called the conscience fund. There are people who, in their youth, cheated other people, cheated the bank, cheated an institution, sometimes of a small amount, sometimes of a large amount of money, 20 years later, through a third party, they will send all the money back with interest, and they sometimes will not even, they'll be anonymous, and they'll put, this is to relieve my conscience. In other words, they've committed the sin, they know it was a sin, don't listen to the stupidity of the psychologists, Nobody commits a sin according to psychologists now. It's all maladjustment and everything else. But we sin. I know I've done a sin. My conscience had warned me not to sin, but I did it anyhow. And my conscience will not give up, and it bothers me, and it nags me. It, it wants me to get clean with God. Now, if I push conscience aside enough, after six months or so, I have what is called a hardened conscience, and I can sin and have a good night's sleep. But the first time I commit the special sin, I don't have a good night's sleep. Thank God. God does not allow me to enjoy myself. But after a while, one can bunt the voice of conscience. And as I noted, whenever I have an examination of conscience, I precisely want to recall those moments when I knew X was evil and I did it nonetheless and then my conscience accuses me, say, you should not have done it, and you did it. And I need forgiveness. 
Memory, I mean, forgetfulness is not forgiveness. I might have done something 30 years ago and I've quite forgotten it, but the guilt remains. The fact that I merit punishment remains until it is forgiven, God pardons me, and I atone for it through suffering. Or someone else atones for it through vicarious suffering. The key point of this entire meditation, this is the key really to the entire talk tonight, is this. The big problem, the only mission of conscience is to ask us and beg us to avoid sin. Conscience plays no role in artistic taste or in cuisine or anything else. It has this narrow department, but the most important department. You and I will go to heaven or hell not because of our, the way we dress, how good we are, our artistic taste, our sensitivity to poetry, our, <clears throat> our susceptibility to delicious cuisine and so on. We will be damned or saved according as we are morally good or evil. So that narrow aspect of life, which is conscience's province, good and evil, not the whole world, the most important part of the world, this is the domain of conscience, and as I note, it's the problem of our life. Von Hildebrand, my great teacher, used to call conscience God's advocate. That God wants us to be saved. It is hard to be good. Even when we know what is to be done and what is to be avoided, we tend to do evil and omit good. So we have this we have this spiritual voice inside of us pleading God's side for our own sake too. If you ask me why should we fear to sin, I'll give you two good reasons which the act of contrition perfectly makes explicit. A loving Christian, someone who has really understood part of the price Christ has paid for our redemption, fears to sin because he knows that sin alone offends God. Sin alone made necessary the redemptive passion of Jesus Christ. And therefore, to the extent that you really understand the relationship between your private sin and the suffering of Christ, to the extent that you love the suffering Christ, you shrink in horror from committing a sin because you love the love. Now that's perfect. That is the perfect attitude. And when you do commit a sin, you have perfect contrition because you are sorry for having committed the sin because the loved one sorrows over you. Would that we had this perfect attitude toward the loved one? Would that we have perfect contrition when we sin? But if that doesn't impress us, Many people talk love, 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 but they're in no way impressed by love, love, love. It's a slogan. There's something else that ought to impress us, that sin demands punishment. This is the eternal law which God cannot change. We when we sin, we deserve punishment. When we sin grievously, we deserve grievous punishment. And therefore... Why I shrink from sin may not be that I love God so much I fear to offend God, but I rather fear God's justice. 
The Lord, the just judge, says St. Paul, will render to each of us according to our works. The wages of sin is eternal death. So even though this particular sin is delicious, I have to admit certain sins don't seem delicious to me. I'm, I'm never tempted to take bribes. I wish somebody would try to tempt me someday. I wonder what kind of an amount of money would tempt me. I, I really couldn't care less about a bribe. But at least in my youth, impurity tempted me. I mean, a naked woman would tempt me. And it's delicious. Otherwise it doesn't tempt me. But never mind whether I love God or not, I fear to commit a sin because I know that fornication and adultery and impurity deserve punishment, and I don't like punishment. I'm a fool, a damned fool, if I exchange a few years or a few hours of pleasure for an eternal pain and suffering the loss of an eternal happiness. So much then with conscience. I claim most disputes about conscience already are blind to this point I've just made. They do not agree with this point I've just made, and if there's any discussion later on, I will insist on clarifying what I mean by conscience. If you have a different meaning of conscience, by all means, bring it up. I now come to a problem of conflict between conscience and authority. And as I noted, my first conflict will be when the authority makes a command, thou shalt do X. And my conscience resists the command. I want to know who should win. And I want to give you a few typical cases just to show you I understand where conscience ought to be supreme. Because I mean to clarify those situations from these other phony situations that people bring up 